Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey stood on the White House lawn, dressed in a dark suit and pillbox hat, the only woman among the honorees on this August afternoon in 1962. It surely wasn't lost on Dr. Kelsey that she was only the second woman to receive the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service, the first having been given in 1959 to Dr. Hazel Stiebling, a nutritionist who helped form the USDA. The fourth person introduced, Dr. Kelsey stepped forward, holding her white handbag tightly. President John F. Kennedy spoke on behalf of many in the country when he said of Dr. Kelsey, quote, I know that we are most indebted to Dr. Kelsey. The relationship and the hopes that all of us have for our children, I think, indicate to Dr. Kelsey, I am sure, how important her work is and those who labor with her to protect our families. So, Dr., I know you know how much the country appreciates what you have done, end quote. Following World War II, many countries in the Western Hemisphere experienced a baby boom, hence, you know, the generation being nicknamed boomers. Leading the numbers were the United States and Canada, while France and Austria saw the highest birth rates in Europe. Other European countries still saw increased birth rates, just to lesser levels. As such, millions of women were simultaneously dealing with the symptoms of pregnancy, anxiety, trouble sleeping, tension, morning sickness. Pharmaceutical companies were racing to find something to sell to these women. The drug that showed the most promise was developed by a Swiss drug company in 1953 before being acquired by a German firm, Chemie Grunenthal. The firm didn't bother to finish its animal trials before moving on to informal human trials. And by informal, I mean the company sent samples to nine doctors to gather data. According to the book Wonder Drug by Jennifer Venderbees, those doctors, a combination of dermatologists, psychiatrists, and neurologists, reported their findings at a symposium on December 16, 1955. Of the nine, only four had positives to report, with those four stating that the drug had, quote, no undesirable side effects, end quote. The others, however, noted negative side effects that included nausea, giddiness, wakefulness, and many patients were found to have formed an addiction to the drug. Another big issue was that none of those nine doctors had any data on long-term use. It was decided more data was needed. Another set of samples were sent to doctors throughout Germany, specifically Berlin. Those doctors also raised serious concerns. One, Dr. Ferdinand Piacenza, stopped his trial early after seeing scary side effects like full-body rashes or burning sensations after only one small dose. According to Wonder Drug, Piacenza wrote to the trial leaders to stress the drug's quote-unquote absolute intolerability in humans. Responding that they had never had such negative results, the trial dismissed his letter. 
Shami Grunenthal also dismissed, or outright ignored, another side effect that appeared in 1956. An employee had taken a sample home for his pregnant wife to ease the symptoms of her final months of pregnancy. In December 1956, their daughter was born without ears, a dark harbinger of things to come. The worst drug disaster in history would spread through more than 46 countries and produce up to 20,000 badly deformed babies worldwide. That's from a documentary titled The Thalidomide Epidemic, one of several sources tapped to help tell today's story about how various governments and companies cut corners when it came to approving a dangerous drug and how tens of thousands of people suffered because of it. Before I begin, a little heads up. My pronunciation of the German company Chemie Grunenthal is going to differ from the documentary sound bites I used within the episode because I actually checked with my best friend who speaks German. The docs tend to say it like Chemie Grunenthal. But according to Emily Batcher, it's Chemie Grunenthal. Or if you're really trying to show off your German accent, Chemie Grunenthal. I'll do it the non show offy way. Anyhow, the company, however you choose to pronounce it, had discovered the drug by accident in 1954 from a BBC documentary. Chemists had been trying to produce an anti-allergy drug. It didn't work. Instead, all the lab rats fell asleep. The scientists had discovered a new tranquilizer that was harmless, even when overdosed. Marketed under the name Distaval, it became so popular, it was taken like aspirin. Doctors prescribed it for all kinds of minor symptoms that they thought were linked to anxiety, including morning sickness. Doctors quickly started passing up the drug for myriad symptoms, despite there having been no long-term studies to see how thalidomide would affect people who used it over a span of weeks or months. It was a mild tranquilizer, helping people prone to anxiety feel more even-keeled. It seemed to help with motion sickness and other conditions that led to nausea. The drug fast became a go-to medication handed out willy-nilly for all kinds of things. This is despite the fact that some users reported disconcerting side effects from the get-go. In late summer 1957, Shami Grunenthal was prepping for cold and flu season. It was almost a year after that Grunenthal's employee's wife gave birth to a baby without ears. That happened in a small town called Aachen, Germany, and it would be the only negative side effect reported. The baby would be the first of six thalidomide babies, possibly more, born to Grunenthal workers in the years ahead. Nonetheless, the company, on October 1st, 1957, rolled out two over-the-counter versions of thalidomide, Let me repeat that. These versions were available over the counter. Now, a quick note about the timeline here. I'll be bouncing around a bit because things moved at different speeds in different countries. Thalidomide was available in over-the-counter versions in Germany by 1957, which is the same year that the drug began spreading into other European countries. But each of those countries oversaw medication testing and authorization in different ways. So the timeline gets a little muddled. What's important to understand is this, as explained by a short documentary called Scandal Thalidomide, posted by Plainly Difficult on YouTube. Towards the end of the 1950s, Contagan was one of the best-selling sedatives in Germany. It was relatively cheap and accessible without a prescription. 
But the product wouldn't be confined to just Germany. Under license, thalidomide was produced internationally and sold across the world. 14 pharmaceutical companies would sell the product in 46 countries under 37 different product names. Anyway, as for the German over-the-counter versions, the first version was meant for treating cold and flu symptoms and mixed thalidomide with fever reducer, aspirin, and vitamin C. The second version was a pure form of the drug sold under the name Contragen. Though the company already knew about some bad side effects, tens of thousands of advertisements described the drug as completely non-poisonous and astonishingly safe. Drug representatives even told doctors that the drug was so safe that it could be taken in doses higher than the highest recommended dose. Nothing was mentioned at all about whether the drug was safe for pregnant people to take. This advertising campaign was boosted by a study from May 1958 done by a German gynecologist named Augustin Blasier. He published his results stating that he'd reported no side effects seen in either the mothers or the babies in 370 patients. As soon as the report hit the shelves, the pharma reps began quoting it as proof their drug was a miracle cure, so safe even pregnant women could take it. What they failed to disclose, yet again, was an important clarification. Blasio did not give the drug to a single pregnant person. His patients were only postpartum women and nursing mothers. And get this, none of them took the drug for more than a week. And yet his study became a key tenant of the drug's marketing, greatly aiding the myth that thalidomide should be given to the pregnant people of Europe. One of the fastest moving drug companies across the pond was called Distillers Biochemical, which had been strictly a liquor manufacturer and distributor before World War II. During the war, the war office requested they transition from liquor to penicillin, and realizing the profits in pharmaceuticals, opened a dedicated branch after the war's end. New to the business, they found actually developing new drugs to be prohibitively expensive and instead looked for foreign drugs they could license to sell in Great Britain. Dr. Walter Kennedy, a German-speaking medical advisor, heard of thalidomide while at a conference and immediately alerted his superiors of this, quote, most remarkable drug, end quote. It took a year of negotiations to convince the German firm that DCBL could handle the distribution but they locked down a 16-year deal and DCBL could put thalidomide on shelves as soon as nine months from the signing date, July 1957. They had until spring 1958 to do whatever testing was required before launching the drug, but nine months isn't much time, especially with England's health and safety regulations. They hired George Summers, a pharmacologist, who began testing the drug on mice. He soon reported bad news about the sedative. The mice weren't sedated. Kennedy, convinced that animal trials had already been completed in Germany, brushed off Summer's concerns and moved forward with sending samples to British doctors. Just like with such testing in Germany, James Murdoch, a doctor in Edinburgh, reported that the drug was blocking thyroid action, saying it was quote-unquote unjustifiable to suggest anyone use it long-term. Terrified and watching that nine-month clock, Kennedy begged Murdoch to withdraw his demand for additional, more intensive studies. Both men knew that this would delay the approval of the drug and potentially add stigma to it. Murdoch agreed, but insiders at DCBL wondered what was going on. 
did Grunenthal lie to them? DCBL leadership eventually decided to essentially parrot the language of Grunenthal. If the creators of the drug said it was safe enough, they could say the same, right? Promotional materials went out covered with the words, no known toxicity. Never mind that, as Wonder Drug puts it, the company's own lab tests hadn't proved this. Thalidomide, with the brand name Distival, hit British shelves on April 14, 1958. It was even advertised using the following in its marketing. Distival can be given with complete safety to pregnant women and nursing mothers without adverse effects on the mother or child. Over the next few years, millions of women were prescribed the medication, including Agnes Denellen, who spoke with BBC. I was about six weeks pregnant with Kevin, and I had very bad morning sickness. I went to the doctor's. He said, oh, we have some new tablets on the market. He said, we'll try them. This was in late 1950. Months later, in 1961, Agnes gave birth to her baby boy, but doctors didn't let her see him for two full days. If you've ever given birth, you can imagine how unsettling that had to have been. Even worse than not letting her hold her new baby, though, was the fact that Agnes wasn't given a reason why. All the mums in the ward were getting the babies, and I wasn't. And I kept looking around, wondering why. And so I asked the sister, and she said, I'll see you tomorrow. She said, your, your baby is not too well. I was taken down in a wheelchair. She pushed me over to a cot, and then she left me. She didn't tell me what was wrong with them or anything. She just left me by the cot, and she said, oh, by the way, she said, he's got very short arms and legs. Agnes didn't think much of this aside. It had been said so casually and quickly, and she was so focused on meeting her baby that the words didn't really sink in. So when I lifted him up, I put the blanket around, I got the shock of my life. Kevin's limbs weren't merely short. They were almost non-existent. Basically, malformed hands and feet at the ends of tiny little flesh offshoots from his torso. None of us had ever seen anything like this. This is Dr. Klaus Newman also speaking to BBC. When I first saw one of these babies, I was absolutely shaken. Perfect head, perfect trunk, a normal baby, just no arms and legs. Agnes was far from the only mother to deliver a baby with these deformities. More and more were reported throughout the UK befuddling doctors like Newman. But while the problem was becoming better known, the cause seemed a mystery. Was it something in the water? Was there a virus affecting babies in utero? No one at first could figure out the why. So thalidomide use kept spreading. Having succeeded at expanding to the UK, the German chemical company Grunenthal looked to expand into other markets, especially the United States. In 1956, the German company signed a deal with Smith, Klein and French in the US, which began animal trials followed by limited human clinical trials that mimicked those in Europe. Samples were shipped to 67 doctors around the U.S., with a majority in New Jersey and California. Within a year, the reports came in and SKF rejected the drug and withdrew its interest paperwork. Grunenthal next approached the American firm Letterly, but they also declined. Thalidomide finally found a home with a subsidiary of Vic Chemical, 
William S. Merrill Company in Cincinnati. This was a well-known outfit, by the way, best known for its best-selling product, Bic's Cough Drops. Head of medical research Dr. Raymond Pogue wanted to capitalize on the huge market for anxiety drugs, and he figured thalidomide would be perfect. The chemical negotiated the contract, setting up a per-year payment scale, while Pogue began to set up clinical trials. The first testing took place at Baltimore's Franklin Square Hospital. Pogue convinced Dr. Frank Eide, the hospital's chief of psychiatry, that thalidomide would help the OCD patients at Franklin Square. Eide was soon dispensing doses to more than 100 patients and ordering more pills from what was then known as Richardson Merrill. Pogue also reached out to several other doctors, including Dr. Ray Nelson, a Cincinnati-based OBGYN, who began prescribing the drug to his patients. According to Wonder Drug, Nelson's first prescriptions were for 25 milligrams, but soon he increased doses to 50 and even 100 milligrams. His reorders numbered in the thousands. Seeing apparently no negatives, Nelson gave it to his wife and even took it himself for power naps. Several thalidomide-prescribed mothers began giving birth to babies with deformities. This is Eileen Cronin, who was one of those babies. She was born in 1960 and later wrote the book Mermaid, a memoir of resilience. I have a sibling who told me that my father cried and that when he came home, he handed me to my siblings and everyone got very upset and they said, um, take it away. Someone ripped off the blankets and said, that's not a baby or something to that effect. That's not our sister. That was what I was told as a young child. But the sales went on. Over a two-day seminar in Cincinnati in October 1960, drug company reps trained salespeople on the details of Kevadon, another brand name for thalidomide. The goal of these men and their teams was to motivate doctors across the country to write prescriptions for Kevadon, so they needed to know the ins and outs of the drugs while being wined and dined by the pharmaceutical company. Everything was on track for Merrill, except for one itty-bitty detail. Kevadon didn't have the approval of the Federal Drug Administration. Without FDA approval, no doctor would be able to prescribe it, no pharmacy could order it, let alone dispense it, Merrill reps spun this obstacle into a perk, telling the salesman to tell doctors that they, quote, would be getting advance news of an important project, end quote. Before Merrill could submit a complete FDA application, they had to undergo additional clinical trials. And one trial involving rats, when the rats were given a human dosage, all of the rats involved in the study died within a day. The next trial involved giving the dosage to a dog. Within two hours, the dog was shaking and vomiting and was dead by morning. While all clinical trial data is required to be included in an FDA application, Merrill's did not include any of this dead animal data. The human clinical data was also carefully curated for the application. The FDA required complete physical exam reports, including weight, blood pressure, age, sex, sleep trends, and symptoms. It also required careful and detailed notes of the patients taking the drug at, quote, consistent doses for stretches of time, end quote. 
The final draft included data from 3,441 case histories, of which only 850 of them were from Merrill's trials. The remaining were all German patients missing the detail critical to a U.S. drug approval. It was all the job of Joseph Murray, Merrill's liaison to the FDA, to field questions from the government and ultimately usher the drug through the approval process. Murray, who had shepherded many applications through the process, warned the leadership about the massive holes in the human trial data. But his concerns were dismissed as quickly as those who came before him. The final application was sent to Murray, putting the project in his hands. Merrill had obtained enough supplies to make 15 million tablets. They printed their promotional brochures. The salesmen had their spiels. The only thing left was the pesky issue of getting FDA approval. On October 25, 1960, Murray called his contact at the FDA to find out who would be assigned to their application. The right or wrong person could mean all the difference. After pleasantries, Murray got the name. Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey. Francis was born in British Columbia, Canada in 1914, graduating from high school at 15 years old. She earned a Bachelor's of Science in 1934 and a Master's in Pharmacology the following year. One of her professors at McGill University encouraged Francis to apply to a new pharmacology program beginning at the University of Chicago. Dr. E.M.K. Galing, the head of the new program, didn't pay close attention to the spelling of the applicant's name, mistaking Francis, spelled with an E-S in the traditionally female spelling, for Francis, with an I-S, the typical male spelling. Not realizing Francis was a woman, Dr. Galing accepted her into the program, and she began in 1936. Part of her work at the University of Chicago included a category of drugs that cause congenital defects, which would prove crucial when she was chosen to review the thalidomide application years later. She earned her PhD in 1938 and her medical degree in 1950. And as if all this wasn't enough, she also worked for the American Medical Association as an editor. Because she's so accomplished, I'm going to shift from calling her by her first name to her now surname, Kelsey. Because who the hell am I to be using this badass's first name like we're besties? During World War II, Kelsey worked on a synthetic cure for malaria as soldiers fought through the jungles of the South Pacific. Many of her co-workers at the University of Chicago were reassigned to a toxicity lab evaluating more than 2,000 chemicals for the government. But as she was still the only woman in the lab, she was prohibited from that project. She also got married and had two children before taking a teaching position at the University of South Dakota. In 1960, she was offered, and accepted, a position at the FDA to be one of their medical officers. Kelsey and her family moved to Washington, D.C., and she began her work reviewing applications for new drug approval. Thalidomide was among her first assignments. This is Dr. Kelsey speaking. Here was a drug that looked like it should be no problem, but at the same time, there was just a feeling that... um, There was something in the data or the absence of data that uh, was a cause of concern. In Kelsey's review, she was looking for three specific areas of data. One, the basic chemistry of the drug. Two, the data from the animal trials. And three, the data from the human trials. At each stage, Kelsey found suspicious data or no data at all. There were questions about the chemical makeup of the drug, 
The animal testing data came primarily from Germany, a big red flag, but the human trial data was the biggest problem. The missing patient information, the missing records of doses, any adverse effects, all of that was problematic. Jennifer Vanderbees wrote in Wonder Drugs that Kelsey, quote, found no explanation of how the drug behaved in the body or how the chemical was absorbed, the key tenant of clinical pharmacology, end quote. Of all the doctors in Germany, Great Britain, and the United States, none included in the application appeared to have even looked for possible side effects or the impact of long-term use. Kelsey was in a bind. There wasn't a glaring reason she could use to reject the drug outright, but a former colleague alerted her to a delicious loophole. They said that Kelsey could send the application back to Merrill because it was incomplete. The delay would give her more time to figure out how to proceed. Murray immediately called her as soon as they received the news and even traveled to Washington with a posse to attempt to convince Kelsey to approve the drug. Refusing to back down, she sent the crew back to Cincinnati, telling them she wanted a completed application with solid data. After a few weeks, an envelope arrived addressed to Kelsey with new paperwork, but no new application. She took it home to study and asked her husband for his opinion. He agreed with Kelsey, but brought up a point that hadn't yet occurred to her. What if the missing data was omitted on purpose? Her annoyance ratcheted up in the winter of 1961 when she received a long overdue copy of the December 1960 British Medical Journal. Reading through it, she found a letter to the editor in the back titled, Is Thalidomide to Blame? Reprinted in Wonder Drug, the letter was written by a Scottish doctor who had been prescribing the drug to his patients, four of whom had developed a quote-unquote painful array of side effects. By the time Kelsey read it, months had passed since the printing of the letter, yet nothing had been said by Merrill regarding the side effects or any concerns of European doctors. She even had a call with Murray and waited for him to bring up the side effects and nothing. In light of the letter, she again rejected the application as incomplete and demanded extensive new data, including data about side effects mentioned in the letter details about animal trials, and names of any doctor who had been prescribing the drug to human patients for four months or more. Kelsey received a list, a list of 56 doctors, but she didn't know the list was missing about 650 doctors that were currently giving samples out to patients all around the U.S. Angry that a government lackey and a woman to boot was preventing them from a fortune, Merrill pressured Murray, who in turn pressured Kelsey. Kelsey was extraordinarily determined, brave, tough, resilient. I mean, she kept knocking back Merrill's application. This is Michael Magazanek, an Australian lawyer who wrote a book about thalidomide called Silent Shock. She kept telling them that there was not the testing to back their application, that it was substandard. They never managed to persuade her their drug was safe and fit for sale. Merrill poured on the pressure. They contacted the FDA 50 times. They went behind her back to her superiors. They complained about her in writing. They threatened libel proceedings. They pushed and pushed and pushed, and she was resolute. She was unbelievably tough. Seven months had passed since their initial application, and Murray's language toward Kelsey was becoming threatening. He told her to decide within a week or else. But Kelsey held firm. She became more convinced that her concerns were founded. 
data from the animal trials never materialized. The Mayo Clinic released a report on another Merrill drug proving that they had hidden its side effects from the FDA. Kelsey wrote a letter to them insisting they must provide the data requested, and if they weren't willing to provide it, they should withdraw their application. Incensed, Merrill demanded a hearing with the FDA. Undisturbed, Kelsey listened to Murray Bloviate before repeating her sensible demands for data, but added that they needed to provide proof that the drug was safe for both mother and fetus during pregnancy. Within weeks of the hearing at the FDA, medical journals across Europe began to publish articles detailing a connection between thalidomide and nerve damage. As many as 1,300 cases had been reported, with unreported cases assumed to be exponentially higher. Anticipating lawsuits, the Grunenthal legal team recommended settling rather than going to trial. They seemed to sense in a trial they'd probably lose big. By July, the dismal news from Germany was making its way to Merrill, worrying their in-house investigators. But they had sunk a year into this drug. They couldn't give up. On September 7, 1961, Murray led a delegation into Kelsey's office to make yet another case for Kevadon, their name for thalidomide. Nearly every doctor was manned, and all were there to parrot Merrill's company line on the drug safety except no one offered her what she continued to ask for, scientific proof of the safety for pregnant and non-pregnant people. A week later, she once again returned their application, stamped incomplete. When Murray called to scream at Kelsey, he was particularly angry because apparently Christmas time is, quote, peak sedative season, end quote. Now, if you're curious why anyone would keep pushing for a drug to be approved despite clearly having difficulty proving the safety of that drug, the answer is pretty predictable. From the thalidomide epidemic again. The drug was such a success for Grunenthal that they started making money hand over fist. And Heinrich Muchter, who was on a percentage of profits, moved from being modestly affluent to having so much money pouring in he could have bought himself a new Mercedes every month. By the way, Mukhtar served as a Nazi doctor during World War II who developed vaccines that were tested on Jewish prisoners in the Buchenwald concentration camp. Many of those people died. After the war, Mukhtar joined Grunenthal. Nine years later, he invented thalidomide and received a bonus for every thalidomide pill sold worldwide. Anyway, by the fall of 1961, the connection between the many birth defects in Germany and the mother's use of thalidomide during pregnancy were finally coming to light. Here's some contemporary news coverage. In Germany, where the pill sold at a rate of 15 million a month, 5,000 children have been born deformed. From Stolberg, Germany, Morley Safer reports. In November of 1961, just 300 miles from here in Hamburg, Dr. Wittekun Lenz, the director of human genetics at the University of Hamburg, found an astounding increase in the number of deformed babies. He deduced that contragan, or thalidomide, was the cause. Kelsey heard some shocking news on the Monday after Thanksgiving 1961 from a surprising source. James Murray called her to tell her thalidomide had been pulled off of German shelves because of a suspected link to birth defects. 
But wait, Merrill still intended to keep their application active. They contacted the doctors who were listed in the application, but did not reach out to the 1,000 additional doctors enlisted by their salesmen to give out samples. And those doctors continued to dispense free, unmarked pills to as many as tens of thousands of Americans. As more reports of birth defects came in, the likelihood of FDA approval dwindled. Murray let Kelsey know in March 1962 they had officially withdrawn their application, though according to a 1962 Washington Post article, Merle was still referencing the birth defects as alleged. They were estimated to have distributed more than 2.5 million thalidomide tablets around the U.S., which were then given to roughly 20,000 patients. That's 125 pills per person. And to top it off, many of the doctors did not keep records of everyone who received the samples, making it virtually impossible for the FDA to contact everyone involved. Officially, more than 10,000 children were identified as victims of thalidomide in 46 different countries. To be clear, though, these are babies born. It's not known how many women miscarried their pregnancies while on thalidomide. The actual victim rate will never be totally clear. As for the survivors, though... According to a report titled The Canadian Thalidomide Experience, presented at the annual meeting of the Canadian Medical Association, the most common birth defect was shortened limbs, quote, with arms being more frequently affected, end quote. Some babies were born with damaged eyes and ears from a program called The Return of Thalidomide. Thalidomide binds to a protein called cerebron, which plays a vital role in the developing limbs and organs as a fetus grows. Because of Dr. Kelsey, only 17 of that 10,000 were born in the United States. A profile appeared in the Washington Post in July 1962, crediting her with preventing the birth of hundreds or indeed thousands of armless and legless children. Kelsey soon appeared in the New York Times, Life, and other publications, all of which made the public realize how closely they came to tragedy. They, in turn, called on their lawmakers to ensure this wouldn't happen again. A Tennessee senator had held hearings in 1959 to investigate the pharmaceutical industry. Now, after the thalidomide scandal, lawmakers resurrected this seemingly dead bill. Rewritten to meet the latest shenanigans of the industry, the Kefauver-Harris Amendment to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was passed on October 10, 1962. The FDA now required pharmaceutical companies to provide, quote-unquote, proof of effectiveness, and it also updated the new drug application to include the informed consent of patients as well as any adverse drug reactions. By the way, following those guidelines, thalidomide was eventually okayed for specific narrow uses. Decades later, it was approved by the FDA and is still used today to treat complications for Hansen's disease, which is also known as leprosy. The benefits can also outweigh the risks with conditions like HIV, Crohn's disease, and lupus. But it's clearly labeled as unsafe for pregnant people and never prescribed in the U.S., at least, for something as trivial as morning sickness. I had to qualify that because I found out recently they had started prescribing it in Brazil again. That did not end well. Anyway, six years after Kelsey stood on the White House lawn, several Grunenthal officials appeared in criminal court, charged with negligent homicide and injury. 
The firm settled with the victims in April of 1970, paying 100 million Deutschmarks into a special foundation for the support of the victims. The West German government added 320 million. When the foundation ran out of money, the government took over the payments and, in 2008, Brunenthal paid another 50 million euros. In 2012, 50 years after the drug was recalled, they officially apologized for creating the drug and not sharing information about the birth defects. After her heroics, Kelsey continued her work at the FDA, changing the institution from within. When she began, she was one of seven full-time medical reviewers, but by 2001, she was one of almost 400 at the age of 86. Remembering the harassing phone calls from Murray, she worked to ensure that, quote, medical officers today are insulated from the drug company by the consumer safety officer and project manager staff, end quote. She retired in 2005 at age 90 after working there for 45 years. The FDA created the Kelsey Award in her honor, awarded to an FDA employee for excellence and courage in protecting public health. Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey died in London, Ontario in August 2015 at the age of 101. Two months earlier, she had been named to the Order of Canada, the second highest honor for merit in Canada for her work against thalidomide. In the ceremony, one of the thalidomide survivors and the head of the Thalidomide Victims Association of Canada said this about Kelsey, quote, to us, she was always our heroine even if what she did was in another country, end quote. To research this story, Jen Erdman read the book Wonder Drug by Jennifer Vanderbees and wrote the initial draft. I watched documentaries and helped flesh it out. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. Crimes of the Centuries.